Uh, my name's Scott. Uh, I think I met all of you before. Uh, but um, this morning, like uh, Mike was saying in the midst of this weekend where people seem to be uh, strewn all over the place, we're going to do things a bit differently, okay? Uh, and we're not just doing things a bit differently because it's a holiday weekend. Uh, this is one of the handful of Sundays uh, this year where we're going to step outside of this whole story from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we're kind of going to do a uh, standalone week. And, and the idea behind these weeks is that as shepherds of the flock, uh, as elders, uh, you know, there's some things that you want to set in place at the beginning of the year. And so we really desired to do this whole story series this year to raise um, the, the understanding of the way that we see the whole story of Scripture uh, for us as, as Bible readers, as people seeking to live uh, under the authority of Scripture. Uh, but then there's always things that come up, right, that, that we maybe don't see in advance. And so that's what these weeks uh, set aside for, are the that we would pray and seek God and ask him to lead us to some things that hit on some uh, felt needs uh, in our flock at the present time. And so as we, as an elder team, discussed and prayed over what might be most helpful to us at a church, uh, as a church at the time, we kind of decided on a topic, uh, and then it was actually just this last week uh, that the Lord uh, led me specifically to this passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 31, where we're going to be this morning. Uh, well, recently I've been uh, reading Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart. Anybody here Brene Brown fan? Uh, I am a huge Brene Brown fan. Um, uh, obviously not everything uh, that she says is under the authority of Scripture, but man, a lot of her work comes in line uh, with what we know to be true about the heart uh, as a result of the Bible. Uh, and Atlas of the Heart is this book uh, that's kind of, uh, I'm only like in the first couple of chapters, but it seems like it's going to give us this emotional vocabulary uh, that's going to be super helpful. Well, uh, in the first couple of chapters of this book, uh, well, you know, like, uh, by the way, uh, if I say that I'm reading a book, that means that I'm just audiobooking this sucker, okay? I still don't even have it in print, okay? But I, I, I audiobook. That's how I read a lot of things. So as, as you're hearing me talk about this, I'm just hearing her voice, okay? Because Brene Brown actually reads her own books for herself on Audible, which I really love. It's like from the author's heart. And she like strays from the words of the page, even to explain things to you that if you're listening on an audiobook, uh, is different than, you, you know, you don't see it on the page. Anyway, so love, love, love reading her books. And uh, this week, uh, I was listening to her talk about the difference between being stressed and overwhelmed. We know these feelings? Anybody? I feel like I know these feelings. I was like, yeah, I'm listening, right? Like my ears are perked up. It's a felt need in my life. And uh, she used this awesome illustration from waitressing. She used to be a waitress for a really long time. Uh, and I forget the phrases because I wasn't a waitress like this, but she said the two phrases that are being in the weeds and being blown. So like being uh, over. Being stressed is like being in the weeds, but being overwhelmed is about like the phrase she used in hers was being blown. And so in the midst of that, uh, I was like really perked up. My ears are listening. And the thing that stood out to me from that section, she said, stressful situations can cause both physiological and psychological reactions in us, Right? It changes what we're thinking in our hearts and our minds. Uh, it also does something to us physiologically. But she went on to say that regardless of how strongly our body responds to stress, our emotional reaction is more tied to our cognitive assessment of whether we can cope with the situation than to how our body's reacting. Okay? Let this click for you for a second. This means that in stressful situations, our emotions respond to our thinking assessment of how well we think we can handle a situation. 
So if we're thinking gospel thoughts in our heads, if we're thinking God is faithful, he's got this in the midst of these situations, that can actually change our emotional response to stressful situations. One place this really <laughs> hits home for me, right, uh, is in nine-year-old baseball. I'm sorry, this is so many of my illustrations right now. It is a lot of my life, okay? Uh, but uh, so uh, we're still at this spot at nine-year-old baseball where there are a select few individuals on my team where stepping into the batter's box is a stressful situation, okay? Uh, they're not sure if they're going to get hit by a baseball because nine new pitchers aren't the best, and so they get tagged a lot. Uh, they're not sure if people are going to like think less of them because they don't get very many hits, and so it's a stressful situation, right? But when and the kid goes in there thinking in his brain cognitively, right, what Brittany Brown's saying, I can't do this, then that is going to be a really stressful situation. It's going to affect his emotions and his physiological response. He's probably not going to be able to get a hit because of the way that it's affecting him. And so I tell each one of my kids, man, the biggest thing about hitting, it's in your head, right? And, and Brene Brown's like, you're right, Scott, it's in your head. Like, you just need to think you can do this, okay? But in a higher and holier way, I'm saying it's in our heads, okay? This week, I have been thinking about how if we're not believing gospel thoughts in our heart and if we're not thinking gospel thoughts in our heads... And there's this aspect to that, then we won't be able to live out the gospel together in stressful situations. You with me? In our everyday lives, this is going to be very hard without thinking gospel thoughts in our heads, believing gospel thoughts in our minds. We won't be able to live out our, our mission statement that talks about living out the gospel together in everyday life. So this morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear because Jesus, the great high priest, has opened a way for us to draw near to God. We must live out the gospel together. My sermon title for this morning is, Let Us Live Out the Gospel Together. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to read to, uh, verses 19 to 31. As we're getting there, I uh, just want to acknowledge uh, it is good for us to gather corporately as a church uh, because of the way, uh, what it does in our hearts, right? Like 1 Corinthians 10, 12, like I already mentioned, uh, take heed. Uh, th those who think they can stand, take heed lest you fall. One way that we remind ourselves that we can't stand on our own is when we have to stand under the authority of Scripture, right? We need God's direction, and that's what we're doing as we step under the Word of God together week by week. So let's read, uh, let, I'll read uh, Hebrews 10, 19 to 31. There's a Bible under your chairs if you want to catch that and follow along, or you can follow along up here on your phone. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expe expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Will you all pray with me? God, as we enter into this text this morning, I pray that you would help each and every one of us, uh, no matter how old we are, no matter how much Bible experience we have, uh, to step into your word fresh this morning. Uh, Would we hear from you, directly from you, help uh, my words that are not from you to fall on deaf ears. God, help us to dial in and to focus uh, and to hear from you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all. Well, we're going to jump into the book of Hebrews this morning. And as we do, uh, before we dive in much further, right, we got to go to school before we head to church. So that's uh, the phrase that I use uh, to help us to understand when we step into a new book of the Bible, context is so important. It's important for us to understand what's going on around it in order to understand what's actually going on in these verses, right? So uh, as we head to school, we need to see that from chapter 4, All the way to chapter 10 of Hebrews, right up to the brink of where our passage starts this morning, uh, the author of Hebrews has been making one overarching argument. He's been making the case that Jesus is the superior high priest, okay? So in Old Testament times, uh, there were high priests. And, uh, and from the time that the temple was built until the time that that temple was knocked out, right, uh, there were uh, high priests. And there's all these levels in the temple of separation. And the holy, uh, the holy of holies was like the most innermost uh, place in the temple. And the only person allowed to go in there was the high priest. And in order for the high priest to go in there, that dude had to get all cleaned up, okay? He had to go through so much uh, ceremony and like uh, washing and stuff like that in order to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. And so the argument being made in these uh, six chapters of Hebrews leading up to this is that Jesus is indeed the superior high priest. Not only that, but he's also the, um, the one that, not, not only the one that makes the sacrifice, but Jesus Christ himself is also the once for all sacrifice to take away the sins of all who believe in him. And so this morning, we find ourselves in a text just after that case has been made. And the question for this morning is this, if, if these couple of redemptive realities that we're going to talk about are true at the beginning of our text, then how do we live out, live out these realities together? You see, this morning we're going to start with two redemptive realities, and then we'll think about living them out together. So let's start with the first of these two redemptive realities. Lesson number one for this morning is because of the gospel, we have confidence to enter into God's presence. This is what the Bible says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Let's put this in our terms, okay? Because of the person of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, because Jesus sacrificed himself, right? He's the great high priest that sacrificed himself as the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of our sins. Because Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin, because Jesus, the Lamb of God, when he was sacrificed, satisfied the requirements of God as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice, this is true. 
I, because of that, I now have access to God. Because of that, I am now welcomed into the very presence of God. Because of that sinner that I am, I can boldly enter God's presence as a sinner and a saint simultaneously. Y'all, we cannot overlook how wonderful this redemptive reality is. We cannot take this for granted. You see, until Jesus came onto the scene, the story was a story of separation. It wasn't a story of access to God, right? Think about this back in the garden. Uh, kiddos, you, you familiar with Adam and Eve? Y'all know, y'all know who Adam and Eve is, right? Well, Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit, when they sinned in the garden, after that, they were separated from God. They were sent out of the garden, right? Uh, Same holds true uh, throughout uh, God's story. Because of sin, there's separation. So then, uh, if y'all remember the story of when uh, Moses is up on the mountain with God and, and the people created a golden calf, right? Like, there had to be separation. Moses is the only one that was allowed into the presence of God. The other people are like staying away from that mountain where God was because they thought that it would bring harm to them, right? Uh, Then you go on in the story of the Bible, and then the temple was built, and we talked about that. There's many levels of separation. The average person wasn't getting anywhere close to the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. But then Jesus happened. You see, Jesus The great high priest over the new covenant has written a new story. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have confidence to enter God's presence. That's the first of these two redemptive realities in our text. Here's the second one. Lesson number two is this. Because of the gospel, we have an advocate before God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this redemptive reality in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21. It says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Church, this verse reminds us that after Jesus died for our sin and rose from the grave to conquer death, sin, and Satan, he did not remain here on earth much longer, but he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And one of the things he does at the right hand of God is speak on our behalf and plead our case because our life is hidden with Christ in God. But let's look at one more passage in Hebrews to see Jesus as the great high priest. It's one of my favorites, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Family, our great high priest can sympathize with us. In other words, the one that argues our case at the right hand of the throne of God, the one who speaks on our behalf, he knows all too well the human condition. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He became like a man. He lived on the same earth that you and I live on for some 30 some odd years in this broken world. He faced all the temptations that we face, scripture says. And he did that so that when we cry out to Jesus, the great high priest for help, we can know that he understands what we're going through. We can Be confident that he will show us sympathy 
in the midst of those things. And he did that so that we will believe and think in line with the gospel that he will give us mercy to help in our appropriate time of need. Now, let me show you something about the structure of this passage that you might have missed because this passage is like a preacher's dream, okay? It starts off with therefore. Y'all love those? I, I don't know about y'all, but I love the therefore text because it's like, hey, we're building on what came before that, right? And then it says since, and then it says since in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since, and then in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest. And then at the beginning of every one of the thoughts, it's like, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this, okay? It like breaks it down nice and simple for me as a preachers so hopefully it's it's easy for you to follow along with too because what it's saying basically is that these let us moments the language tells us what it looks like to live out the gospel together this gospel that we just rehearsed that we have access to God because of the gospel that we have a, a representative an advocate at the right hand of God because of the gospel those are the foundations of everything else that comes after these let us statements in the text so we're going to talk about how to live in line with these redemptive realities the rest of this morning. So the last lesson is this, but I'm going to be touching on it in all of these let us moments, okay? It's because of the gospel, our lives must be marked by devotion, action, community, and seriousness. Obviously, by, the, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we do indeed have access to God. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we also have a great high priest who understands the human condition and who offers us mercy to help in our time of need. And to help us remember what it looks like to live out these redemptive realities together, I want to give us four words, okay? Uh, Y'all know uh, my friend Paul Tripp, right? Like he's like the pastor with the best mustache in America, okay? Um, Well, he says there's four words that he uses to help us hang our hats on to remember the things going on in this text. Uh, Really simplified it for me, so I'm just going to use those same four words as we walk through the text. The first word is devotion. If we're going to live on the basis of these redemptive realities that we have access to God and we have an advocate with the Father, the great high priest. The, the, one, the first thing it brings about is devotion. You see it now in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Kiddos, you got to help your parents remember. The one word for this one is devotion, okay? That word, help them remember that. They're going to struggle with that, kids, okay? This verse is saying that if I'm really living out the gospel that we rehearse together, then my life will be a life of devotion to Jesus. But we need to be careful about how we use this word because in American Christianity, right, what that word has devolved into is in half an hour in the morning where maybe I read my Bible a little bit and I say a little prayer to Jesus and we call it devotions. But this, this passage isn't talking about that, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, okay? Nobody is saying that that is a bad way to start your day. What I'm saying is that it, this is so much more than that. This passage is not saying that living out the gospel together looks like having uh, little moments in our day where we do devotions or we get our devotionals out of the way. 
Obviously, the good news of the gospel is that we who once did not have access to the holy God because of our sin have been given access through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, we don't just have access to an average high priest who sometimes understands what's going on in our lives, but we have Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who understands fully the human condition and has promised to give us mercy That's what we don't deserve, okay? Mercy in our time of need. In other words, Jesus is fully devoted to us, and as a result, we must be fully devoted to him. This is not a a once-a-day kind of thing. This is an all-of-life devotion to the one who is our everything. He's our portion in in life. He's the treasure that we would be willing to sell everything to get. Y'all know that story in the Jesus Storybook Bible? The treasure that we would sell everything to get in order to get him. Jesus is that treasure. So the first thing that the redemptive realities bring about in our lives as we live the gospel together is devotion. Let's talk about the second word. Kiddos, you with me? The second word for this morning is action. Okay, so far we got what? Devotion and action, right? Here it is in the text in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, action might not be the first word that comes to mind when you read this verse, but think about this with me. Our confession of faith is never just something that we do with our brain, right? Our confession of our faith can't ever be something that we merely do with our mouths either. It's got to be at least word and deed. Our confession of faith always has something to do with the way that we live our lives. In other words, if we intend to hold fast the confession of our hope when the going gets tough and when storms of circumstance come our way in life, then it won't be enough to hold fast based on what other people think about us. You know, like sometimes that's our motivation, right? In life, we're just thinking, I'm gonna do this so that people think well of me. And and so that's not gonna be enough in these kind of situations. It's not gonna be enough to hold fast based on our circumstances, right? Because uh, hopefully uh, most of us have lived enough life to know that uh, our circumstances aren't always gonna go our way. It's not gonna be enough to hold fast based on our strength because uh, Lord knows in the midst of some storms, our strength won't be enough. And so we need to look back on this verse and see that holding fast is based on one thing. Let me reread it for us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Harvest City, we hold fast because our God is faithful. So when the going gets tough in our marriage, think about this. It's not going to be enough to think about the reciprocal commitment that I made with my spouse, right? Like, it's like, oh, I covenanted my life to my spouse. And we both covenanted to, like, love each other till death do we part and, uh, and all that sickness and health, all that business, right? And you're thinking, okay, so, like, I can do that when my spouse does it, right? That's, that's actually the easiest part of the covenant of marriage. But what happens when they don't uphold their end of the covenant? Well, I can't do it based on this reciprocal love that's here anymore or the faithfulness of my spouse. Now the transaction has to be the only hope that I have in order to love my spouse faithfully, even when they've been unfaithful to that covenant, is because God is in that covenant as well. That was a covenant I made before God, and he is faithful. Amen? 
The same thing holds true at work, right? Think about this. If one of your coworkers slanders your character, my strength is not going to be enough to keep me from chirping back and cutting him or her down in that moment. In order to hold fast the confession of our hope, we're going to need to stand in the faithfulness of God, who's always with us and can always protect us, no matter what our coworker says. So instead of cutting in that moment, I can choose kindness. Or maybe it's just a sin struggle that you feel like you've been stuck in or caught up in for quite some time. You've fallen into this sin over and over and over again. There's times when you're, you find yourself wondering if it's even worth it to keep on fighting. And you start to ask yourself the question, is the gospel really true? Well, in moments like this, it's utterly important for us to believe that no matter how many times we've failed, I can get back up because God is faithful. His grace is sufficient for me, and he can enable me to take righteous action even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So the first two words for this morning, what were they, kids? You guys remember? Devotion and what? Action. All right, so we got two. Here's the third one uh, is community, okay? Devotion, action. The third word is community. This is one of the first verses that I ever memorized in my Bible, okay? So if you're a Bible memorizing kind of kid, uh, lock this one in. It'll do you good. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Y'all, this is legit. One of the first 10 verses I ever memorized in my life. Uh, But I love this about the Bible, that it's the living word of God. Because this joint was jumping off the page. And I learned a lot of new things through this text in the last week or so. So this passage uh, may be one where I take a little pit stop here. And we might be on this one for a moment, okay? It might seem like we jumped through the first two points. But this one, I really did catch a lot this week. So this passage is saying, if we really believed the gospel, then we will not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, chapter 10 of Hebrews right here is saying that church attendance, it's not just a gold star on your moral church badge issue. Church attendance is a gospel issue. It's saying that showing up regularly to my missional family is a gospel issue. But when it comes to the gospel, we all know how easy it is to be gospel amnesiacs, I think that's a part of what happened to Christians throughout our entire country, maybe throughout the entire world, what I'm hearing from other pastors, it is so common for people to forget the good news of the gospel and that I've not just been uh, saved by grace into a relationship with God, but I'm literally adopted into the family of God. My identity in Christ is not a free agent reality. It's one that my life is connected. I'm a member in the body of Christ. And Kyle's brought up this verse like in the last three elder meetings we've had, right, Mike? Like that we are literally members one of another like that with without any one of us like the body is completely different like we we're connected to one another in the body of Christ like our participation in the gathering of the church is a gospel issue we forget that it's a part of our identity in Christ 
And so I want us to notice what's being said here in this passage, right? This could have been written like as merely a positive, right? Sorry, my mom's an English teacher, so these things jump to me. But it could have been written like, let us consider how we stir one another toward love and good deeds. And then after that, it could have said something like meeting together to encourage one another, Right? It could have, there's, a, there's no need for the double negative here unless there's a reason for it, right? L- listen to what it actually says, though. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, here it is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the author uses a double negative here. It says, not neglecting to meet together because it was actually the habit of the people in the church being written to at the time. For some reason, they were not meeting together regularly in the way that the gospel like demands of our lives, you know? So I'm thinking maybe there's like a little bit of an overlap in our culture, right? Like I wonder if they had like uh, club sports. They must have had club sports up in here and in, in this, wherever the, the people in the church that, that this is being written to, right? Because Hebrews is said to be like a, like a little bit like a letter, but also like a sermon. So they could have been like hearing it in a sermon or they could have been written to. And so I'm thinking, uh, I wonder if if that's what's going on because I tell you what like I am the only one on my baseball team that is concerned at all about being anywhere else on a Sunday morning when we have baseball tournaments and and they think it's just because of my job and I'm like no no no. I think it's because of the gospel I think it's because I have been adopted into the family of God and like I need to be present in that family for our gathering uh to be like what God wants it to be right I, and, and it makes me think Man, I wonder what else might be happening in that culture that's similar to ours. I wonder if there was some traumatic circumstance that happened that made it so uh, for a season, you know, maybe it was like the plague or something like that. For a season, they like had to be distanced from one, one another for a bit. And that changed the way that they were thinking about things. And so they started to think, maybe I'm not necessarily there. Maybe I can uh, just track vertically with God and, and do without the people around, Right. I don't know what the thing that was going on was, but there was something going on here so that they said, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You see, in the word translated meet together is defined like this in a Bible dictionary. This like blew my head, okay? I thought maybe it was talking about like what we do in Bible studies. I thought maybe it was talking about like having a little prayer group uh, with people, you know, just a generic meeting together when Christians get together. But in a Bible dictionary, that phrase meet together literally means a local religious gathering of those allied with and trusting in the God of Israel for religious services, says, church, some of us have neglected meeting together on Sunday mornings for far too long. And the thing is, when we're not gathering, like uh, we're isolating, right? Like my wife is reading this book by Christine Kane. It is off the chain. That lady is on fire, okay? Christine Kane is where it's at. But like, and, and she says this like point blank. When we are not gathering together with other Christians, we are isolating, And I tell you what, there's a big difference between isolation and solitude. Y'all know what I mean? Solitude is intentionally drawing away to be with God. Isolation is where sin runs rampant and the enemy feeds us with lies. If we're not gathering, we're isolating, she says. But there's two other things that I want us to see in this passage. The first is this. When we gather as a church, 
When we come to church, when we go over to our, our friend's home for missional family, part of the purpose of our gathering is to provoke one another to love and good deeds. It's literally, that's what the phrase stir up means, is to provoke. So uh, kids, how many times do you think that you've provoked your sister or your brother? You guys know what that phrase means, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Henry knows what I'm talking about, right? Like in our house, uh, Kate and Kobe got this thing that like Maddie and I were talking about this morning. Like they'll provoke one another by just like saying, like, how come you don't have the right amount of toothpaste on your toothbrush? And they'll argue about having a pea-sized, you know, shape of, or, you know, amount of, of toothpaste on the toothbrush. They don't care about how clean each other's teeth are. You know what I mean? Like, they're just trying to provoke one another. They're trying to get under one another's skin to get them to say something. So then, then you know, what happens, and then somebody's going to get in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, they're just trying to provoke. So we think about provoke a lot of times in a negative sense, right? Think about this, families. On our way to church, there's usually a lot of provoking going on, right? You know what I mean, parents? It's like, I can't get to church without some provoking happening in the minivan, right? What if... On Sunday mornings, there was a different kind of provoking happening. What if the provoking was, I am trying to nudge one another. I'm trying to live my life in a way that I stir you up to love God more and to love others more. What if my provoking wasn't picking at you, trying to get you to say the wrong thing so then, so then you get in trouble, but my provoking was such that in, in the way that I live my life, I actually cause you or stir you up to do better things with your life. This is what this passage is calling us to. Think about this. Isn't it beautiful when we think about this in the positive, right? Like when Mike Manning walks up in a church with those sweet shoes that he has on today, I am provoked to love every time because I want to tell Mike how cool his shoes are. And I can't help myself. And so then I give him a compliment and it actually makes me love him better because he's present with his cool shoes on in the morning. Okay, like this legit happens, okay? Uh, think about this, like every time uh, the Stewart family is here, right? Like Addie Stewart, like is just beaming, right? Like she is like this little ball of love and joy and like it provokes me to love because I can't let Addie pass by without giving her a hug or a high five or something, you know what I mean? Like it provokes me to love and good deeds. This is what it does when we gather as the church. But the same thing can be true even in the midst of difficulty, okay? When someone, when you've sinned against someone or they've sinned against you, think about how it can provoke you to love and good deeds just to see that person come up and take the body and blood of Christ in communion. Because you, you're thinking, gosh, it is true that love covers over a multitude of sins. It is true that the shed blood of Jesus is enough for us to come to the Lord's table together in communion. Family, I think all too often we use provoke in a negative way and we got to get better at provoking one another in this way. I think we need to come to church considering what, not what we can get out of it, but what God wants us uh, to do in someone else's life, how we could provoke them to loving good deeds. I told you a little bit of a soapbox on this section, okay? So there's one more thing that I want us to see in verse 25. Look at how it ends, Okay. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It says we are to provoke and encourage one another all the more as we see, in my Bible it's capital, the day approaching. 
You see, that day is the future day of Christ's return. And that day is going to be a day of of judgment. But all who are in Christ will then get to spend eternity with God in heaven. It's going to be a significant day. And I think the reason that God tells us to do so all the more as we see that day drawing near is because when we gather, when we gather corporately as the body of Christ, as a church, to provoke one another to love and good deeds, gathered churches are here now embassies of heaven. Y'all know what an embassy is? Well, like I said, uh, for the elders, this is a pretty big deal for us, okay? We've actually been reading a book together called Rediscover Church, and it does a brilliant job of illustrating for us what an embassy is. So follow along with me. I'm going to read it. It says, an embassy is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another. It represents and speaks for that foreign nation. It represents its government. For instance, if you ever went to Washington, D.C., you can walk down Embassy Row where embassy after embassy from around the world is lined up. You'll see a Japanese flag and then an embassy, the United Kingdoms, then Italy's, then Finland's. Each embassy represents a nation of the world and its government. Were you to enter these embassies, you'd hear a different language, the language of the nation it represents. Among its staff, you'd experience its culture. If you attended an embassy dinner, you'd taste its delicacies. And if you uh, sneaked into the back offices, we'd assume you'd learn about its diplomatic business. Here it is. What's a gathered church? It's an embassy of heaven. Step inside your church or ours, and what should you find? A whole different nation, sojourners, exiles, citizens of Christ's kingdom. Inside such churches, you'll hear the king's, king of heaven's words declared. You'll hear heaven's language of faith, hope, and love. You'll get a taste of the end-time heavenly banquet through the Lord's Supper, and you'll be charged with its diplomatic business as you're called to bring the gospel to your nation and every other nation. Not only that, you should experience the beginning of heaven's culture. The heavenly citizens in this embassy are poor in spirit and meek. As they follow Christ, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers and turn the other cheek. They walk the extra mile and give the shirt or their jacket, if you ask. They won't even look at a woman lustfully, much less commit adultery. They won't hate, much less commit murder. Don't get me wrong, church. I know that our church fails miserably at times. I know I do myself. But what God calls us to do is be an embassy of heaven. In order to do that, we need to each remember, or each of us in the body of Christ, we need each one of us to play a part, uh, to live in harmony together to the glory of God. So what are the three words we got so far, kids? Devotion, action, and community, right? Henry's killing it back there. So here we go. Uh, Here's the fourth one. It's serious, okay? Serious. There's the fourth thing that we see in this passage, some commentators call this section the fourth let us, even though there's not the words let us there, okay? And it's this warning found in verse 26 to 31. So Paul Tripp's word is serious. And if you don't, uh, you don't have to know too much to pick up the fact that this warning is definitely a call to take sin seriously. There are some strong words found in this passage, y'all. So let's start uh, by looking at verse 26. Here's what it says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
This is saying, if after receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, if I go back to being the master of my own destiny and try and save myself from the brokenness of sin in me and around me, if I go back to the individualism of our day, going and doing what I want to do whenever I want to do it with no regard to God or his word, if that's my choice, then I am essentially rejecting the grace of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if I'm rejecting Jesus, the Redeemer, then there's no hope for me. The only one in whom anyone can find redemption, the forgiveness of their sins. There's nowhere else we can go to find those things. So without getting into the weeds too far here, I think it's incredibly important for us to just simply see how sin is talked about in this passage. Sin is not taken lightly. Sin is put, a, put forth as a direct affront against the triune God. Sin is rejecting God's position. Sin is rejecting God's grace. Sin is chasing to rule or choosing to rule my own life and not live under the rule and reign of God. Or some of y'all, I don't know if kids, you guys are familiar with this. This is something we use in our house. But the New, kids, New City Catechism says sin is rejecting, you guys know this song? It's rejecting, ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in God's law. But listen to the phrases used specifically in this passage. Sin sets aside God's law. Sin tramples underfoot the Son of God. Sin profanes the blood of the covenant. Sin has outraged the spirit of grace. Harvest City, we live in a culture that doesn't take sin seriously at all. We've got to see this. Our culture thinks sin is funny the majority of the time. Our culture uses sin for entertainment. Our culture uses sin to advertise their products so that people will buy it and get caught up in it. And to be honest, I don't think the average person in our culture really has any idea of what sin really is. But if we believe the gospel, this text says, we must take sin seriously. We must heed this warning because the gospel reminds us that there's one who left heaven, came to earth, put on flesh, lived a sinless life, and then suffered and died a gruesome death so that all who trust in him could be forgiven of our sin. Church, it's impossible to understand the gospel without taking sin seriously. Universalism's all over the place in our city. Pluralism is just as common. Think about this. Universalists say sin is not a problem at all. Nobody has a problem with God, actually. Universalists say, like, sin's not even, a, it's not even present, it's not even a thing. We just are all good with God. Grace is super cheap. It didn't cost God anything. We're all cool with him, no matter what. You don't have to respond. He didn't have to deal with your sin. We're just cool. That's what universalists say. Pluralists say this. Pluralists say God is like a mountain, right? And like there, there, here's the mountain, God's at the top, and there's all these different paths up the mountain, okay? Kids, I'm talking about uh, a form of heresy, okay? This is not what we believe in the Bible. This is what pluralists say, okay? Is that God is like a mountain, and you take all these different paths up it. I tell you what, the gospel says that sin is a serious problem, 
The gospel says that sin separates us from God. All of us are sinners. That's why Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed for our sin. That's why Jesus, the great high priest, made the once for all sacrifice for sin. It was to bring us to God because we were separated from God by our sin. And God had to do that not by any work of our own, but by what Jesus Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection so that we could simply trust in him. I don't know about y'all, but I've always thought this. In order for pluralism to be true, the God at the top would have had to be some sort of sick God. Why in the world would God sacrifice his one and only son if that was just one of the paths up the, up the mountain? Why wouldn't it be like, why wouldn't you just decide if you were God and it was a, there was 10 other paths to get up the mountain, why wouldn't you decide just to put a detour sign at the bottom of that one and say, hey, try out one of the other paths. I'm not willing to sacrifice my one and only son if there's nine other paths to get up this mountain. Y'all, the gospel says that sin is serious and we need to take it seriously. Family, the truth of the matter is this, because of the gospel, we must Take sin seriously. Kids, here's the wrap. Living out the gospel together, it means devotion. Living out the gospel together, it means action. Living out the gospel together means we don't neglect meeting together, but we live in community. And living out the gospel together means seriousness. So think about how we started off this morning. One of the ways that Brene Brown's research actually lines up what the Bible says is this. It's that our thoughts and our beliefs at the core of our being, they actually do affect our street-level responses in the midst of stressful situations. They have a large effect on our physical responses and our emotional responses in the midst of stressful situations. And so that's why I'm here to remind us this morning is not a call to behavior modification. I believe this morning that the Holy Spirit is calling us back to deeper belief in the gospel, to truer street-level thoughts about the gospel that are going to bear the fruit of gospel devotion. They're going to bear the fruit of gospel action. They're going to bear the fruit of gospel community and us taking sin seriously. And our only hope to see this happen is found in the grace of our great high priest who not only made the sacrifice, but literally gave his life for us. And he promises to give us mercy in our time of need. If there's anything said this morning that you're like, man, there's a call for me to repent and live in line with the gospel. Man, first and foremost, we need God's mercy more than we need to grind and try and make that change on our own. Well, Harvest City, one of the most beautiful expressions of living out the gospel together is when we partake of the sacrament of communion in corporate worship. This is what Jesus said as he pulled his disciples together in an upper room. He took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let me just remind all of us of what communion is. We, we who have come to receive the holy communion of the body and blood of our Savior Christ can only come because of his great love for us. For although we are completely undeserving of his love, yet in order to raise us from the darkness of death to everlasting life as God's sons and daughters, our Savior Christ humbled himself 
to share our life and to die for us on the cross. In remembrance of his death and as a pledge of his love, Jesus instituted this holy sacrament that we're about to partake of. But those who would eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord must examine themselves and amend their lives. We must come to him with a repentant heart and steadfast faith. And above all, we must give thanks to God for his love toward us in Christ. Harvest City, here, here at Harvest City, the table's open to all who have repented of their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's also going to be two other ways to respond this morning. Uh, if you need to pray with somebody in the back, there will be a couple people uh, from the prayer and care team. And we will all stand and sing from the bottom of our hearts at the top of our lungs in just a moment. Will you all pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. Man, what good news is it that you have given us access into your presence. God, that we don't have to work harder, that we don't have to read our Bibles more, that we don't have to uh, do the right thing every day in order to come into your presence, but because of the good news of the gospel, because of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, that if we are in Christ, we can come with boldness and confidence. We can barge into your presence knowing that we have a great high priest who stands at the right hand of the throne of God, who argues our case, who loves us, who understands our human condition and offers us grace and mercy in our time of need. God, we ask for your mercy. Be merciful to us this morning to empower us to live lives of devotion, action, and community, taking seriously the sin in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.